0: hey let's get into the word today uh, we're going to talk about uh, we, we usually do a series on marriage and we just didn't get to it this year with other other priorities but it's too important not to talk about And marriage and I would say relationships what I'm going to talk about today certainly will apply to other relationships outside of marriage so you don't have to be married here to I think receive from this and I'm going to talk about The dark side of love languages. How many of you know or are familiar with Gary Chapman's love languages? Raise your hand. Most of you. Um, So I'll get into it in a minute and but uh, we're gonna talk about marriage relationships with our significant others. Uh, I heard a guy say the day he said uh, he he said I'm married have a family now it's great but uh, I was afraid of marriage for a long time, You said, because I did my research and I found out that 50% of marriages last forever. (laughs) So so we're going to specifically take a look at the five love languages and where they can go wrong and where they get twisted. That's why I call it the dark side. We're not talking about perfection, All of us sometimes fail. All of us will fail. At each point today, you'll go, Oh, yeah, I do that sometimes to some degree or another. Um, We didn't marry perfection. You're not perfect. Your spouse is perfect. Uh, You may have seen the little sketch that uh, Tyler Perry's character Medea that she does on the 80-20 rule. Have you seen that? Uh, She said, uh, uh, You know, if you get 80% of what you want out of a spouse." you're doing great. You should be happy. She said, what we do is we focus on the 20% that we're not getting. And we find somebody that will give us the 20%. <laughs> so we leave the person who was giving us 80%, and we hook up with the person's giving 20%. Now all we have is 20%. <laughs> and uh, that's, she said, that's why the... That's why the windshield in your car is bigger than the rearview mirror. <laughs> All of us sometimes fall into the trap of creating rules. See the the the. Let me back up. The five love languages built on this this. It's constructed around this idea that you have a love tank, and you have certain things that your spouse can do for you or your partner can do for you that fill up your love tank and some things that don't. The, the golden rule, if applied literally, uh, will, is destined to fail in marriage because the golden rule says do unto others as you should have them do unto you. And what fills your love tank and what makes you happy is probably not what makes your spouse happy. So one of the reasons marriages get frustrated is because you're doing for your spouse what the, what you would like done for you, but not what would that, not what they would like done for them. And I think the the love languages are really good. I, I think it's a, I think it's an excellent thing. I, when I do premarital counseling, I give people a test to, to know what their love language is. So they go in this with their eyes wide open and they know here's. Here's what will make your spouse feel loved. And here's what, you may do it, you know, like acts of service do not make me feel loved. I appreciate them. I do appreciate acts of service. I do appreciate it, but it just doesn't touch me in that area where I feel like I I really feel filled filled up with love. Here are the five, in case you haven't read the five love languages, here they are. They're affirming words. Quality, time, gifts, physical touch, and acts of service built on the empty tank construct Now the five love languages, while not connected to scripture in Dr. Chapman's book on the subject are certainly scriptural ideas One example that connects the love, five love languages with scriptures: Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit Rather in humility value others above yourselves not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of the other. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus came not to serve; the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be. Ser- he came not to be served. I should say that right. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus was all about what would meet your needs. That's what he was all about. Right. Now, you need to know, though, that the adversary of your soul and of the adversary of your relationships, Satan hates marriage. Satan hates the distinction between man and woman. He tried to destroy it from the very beginning. And so, uh, you need to know that the adversary of your soul and of your relationships is extremely sneaky. He takes good principles and he twists them. He takes scripture and he twists it. Example is the temptation of Jesus Christ. He took scripture and he twisted it. And his sneakiness and deception and dishonesty is matched by your dishonest and deceptive heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. You say, well, I'm saved and covered with the blood of Jesus. Your heart is still deceitful and beyond cure. You say, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Your heart is still deceitful and beyond cure. You say, but I've I've been a church member for 50 years. Your heart is still deceitful and beyond cure. Listen to the rest of the verse. So so what am I going to do? It says, the Lord searches the heart and examines the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their needs deserve. The way you get out of this trap is you read the Word and you find out what God wants you to do. See, the problem, one of the problems of modern-day Christianity is this problem of magical thinking. And that magical thinking is if I am a Christian, if I have Jesus, I'm going to magically be the person I need to be. I'm going to magically behave properly because I have Jesus living inside of me. I am covered with the blood of Jesus. I have the Holy Spirit. So, whatever thoughts come to my mind are divine. (laughs) After all, I have the mind of Christ. When the Bible says that you have the mind of Christ, it did did go to Philippians chapter 2. It doesn't say that you magically have. It's obviously not teaching that you magically have the mind of Christ. Because it goes on to tell you what you will do if you have the mind of Christ. It goes on to tell you how it's demonstrated. If he wouldn't bought, in fact, think about this for a minute. Think about this. The, the entire New Testament from Acts on is all about telling Christians how they should behave. None of it is about telling non-Christians how they should behave every bit of it is telling Christians how they're to behave. Now that's a scary thought, Mike. That's scary. You read over there some of the things that he tells Christians to stop doing, including murder. (laughs) And I wouldn't believe it if I had not been doing this for 50 years. I know that Christians are capable of the worst kind of behavior. I don't care how much Jesus they believe in. And I don't care how holy they think they are. We're not healthy in our left to ourselves. Or why did he spend all those chapters telling people how to behave if, if all I need to tell people is just love Jesus? So let's be delivered from magical thinking. If knowing Jesus magically transforms us into people who would never be capable of selfishness or insensitivity toward our spouse, why did He write 1 Corinthians seven three? The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but but her husband. The wife does not have the husband does not have authority. But I'm, I'm losing my focus here. I'm, the wife. Let me begin. <laughs> The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, you can breathe, because I'm not going to unpack these verses. (laughs) We'll do that another time. It's it's so funny today, and I hope ugh, I hope nobody's here. I'm not live streaming, so I could say this, but uh, I, I'm so funny. Uh, if I mention if I mention the word sex in a sermon, I will invariably have some person come to me. Oh, my twelve-year-olds in the service. Did you have to say that? <laughs> I'm like, what planet are you living on? <laughs> He's been a, your twelve-year-old knows more about that subject than you do. <laughs> he's been inundated with the internet and, and, and everything. He's he's aware of more than way more than he should be, right, <laughs> or she. So I, I laugh at Christians, boy. We're a, we're a, we're a bunch, aren't we? <laughs> so Satan, the great twister of all time, the great truth twister of all time, colludes with our deceitful hearts. You remember the five love languages? He colludes with our, 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 our deceitful hearts to create false love languages. False love languages. So we start feeling connected to our spouse and our significant other around things that aren't healthy. Instead of affirming words, you should be good with, uh, quality time, gifts, physical touch, and acts of service, you start connecting about other things that are substitutes for the healthy things. One is gossip and other people's drama. I created a fake conversation that I'm going to read to you right now. This is Mike and Jane going home from church. Mike, Phew, that sermon was something else, wasn't it? Jane, oh, you mean Pastor Phil's attempt to set a record for the longest sermon ever. I think he was going for the Guinness World Book of Records. Mike, seriously, I was clean shaven at the start of the service. Now I have a beard. I, I battle. I, I'm, no, I'm not a good comedian, Mike. I laugh at my own jokes. They must, they must make sermon supplements, stamina supplements, I meant to say. Jane, oh, and did you notice the Jones family sat in the back today? They usually sat up front. I couldn't help noticing that they didn't sing or participate in the service like they usually do. It's got to have something to do with Billy being suspended from BCA for being caught vaping in the restroom. Mike, yeah, I don't know why they bother to send their kids to a Christian school. They're not going to live the Christian life in their home if they can't get on board with everything it takes to raise a Christian child. Jane, I can't imagine what goes on in that house. I haven't haven't even told you about the picture that Billy texted Susie a couple months ago. Mike, it reminds me of your brother and his family. But at least they're Unitarians, so it makes sense. Jane, I think you should take Billy's dad out for coffee. He definitely needs some entry. See, here's the deal. We're human beings. You need to know this if you don't already. It's a widespread phenomena for humans to get excessively intertwined and enmeshed in matters of offense or drama surrounding other people. I've been pastoring enough years to watch groups form around offense. Because you feel very you feel very important if i come and tell you a secret about someone else i'm i'm elevating you you know i i you know just to, i just need you to pray with me i i mean you know we love our pastor's wife and all but uh, she, you know 3 weeks in a row she just walked right by me and didn't even look at me you know so, something's going on with her I'm just really concerned. She seems very distracted. You know, just, just, just don't tell anybody. Just, just let's pray about it, okay? You felt you feel, mm, they brought me into the inside, inner circle. Uh, this, this gossip and other people's drama, it, can, it, can, it doesn't have to be about church people. It can be political. you talking about the political theory, man. I can, we can go nuts on that. It can be talking to your family. It can be talking about your extended family. It can it can even be sports and entertainment. And not it's not even necessarily always wrong. The problem occurs, you know, I expect and you I expect that you could have more candid conversations in the privacy of your own marriage than you would outside. So I'm not saying that every time you say a critical word about somebody you should repent or anything like that. That's that's not real realistic. But when but when the, the, the problem occurs when it becomes the glue in your relationship a substitute for true love languages and it, 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 when it becomes that's your safe space that's when you bond that's when you feel close and it's because it's a way of avoiding talking about you and her or you and him. It's a way of avoiding the problems in your own relationships and you do it because it's safe and you do it to avoid talking about what's really going on between you. The most nourishing dimension of your relationship in marriage and significant relationships has to be about you and them alone. I love the old hit country song Eddie Arnold all those years ago. I'm sorry if I hurt you I'll make it up to you day by day. Just say you love me like you used to and make the world go away. Make the world go away. Take it off my shoulders. Say the things you used to say and make the world go away. God created marriage for one reason, for many reasons, but one of the reasons is so you would have a place where you could be completely focused on. And you could completely focus on him or her. And you could make the world go away. God gave marriage as a respite, an escape, a break, if you would. You know, God gives us many escapes. Worship, coming to church and worshiping. That's a, a break from the madness of the world out there. Also within the privacy and intimacy of your marriage. And I think other significant relationships can also play this role as well. But a place to escape the world outside. If you keep bringing the world inside by talking about everybody's drama and gossiping and, and finding, making that a source of entertainment and distraction for your conversations and relationships, you are not building each other up and you're not building yourself up. That's what I'm talking about today toxic love languages. Secondly, here's another toxic love language Look at me, praise me, I am great. I really feel loved when I am the hero. I really feel loved when I'm the smartest person in the room. This is not at all the same need for words of affirmation. Words of affirmation are merely honest expressions of one's good performance, qualities, grateful acknowledgment of where someone else has struggled over adversity and succeeded, you know. I talked to Zach this morning and I'm so proud of him for battling cancer, overcoming cancer and just this last week he did all the hard work of, of becoming a chief in the Coast Guard going to rank of E7 in the Coast Guard in the, in the middle of battling cancer man that is awesome i high-fiving him for that is not saying, look at you, you are awesome, you're great. No, it's just acknowledging the struggle. When Sherry would say to me, that's a good sermon today. That's not saying you're the greatest. Or when someone would say, if you would say to your spouse, you've been working really hard, you need to take a break. That's a way of acknowledging they're a person. That's, that, that's words of affirmation. Or I really appreciate it. Last week, and I was sick all week and you got the kids up every morning and made them breakfast and got them off to school and you kept the house clean all week. Thank you so much. Expressing appreciation is one thing. In fact, j- just even before I knew uh, what I was going to really talk about today and Sherry and I were talking, we had a situation which I won't get into because it opens up too many doors of, uh, and answers, trying to answer too many questions as some of you weren't around here. But we had a situation that involved, um, it involved legalities, it involved the, the media, we had every, every major network parked out there in front of our church. It involved the state of Massachusetts and a lot of other serious things. And my wife stepped up like nothing. I mean, it was amazing. I, I don't believe she slept more than three or four hours for that whole week because she was up every night pouring over legal documents Making sure to know what our legal position was, what our rights were as a church, and she went to battle for the, the school and this church. And in fact, she was she was giving the attorneys direction <laughs> because they wanted to compromise. They wanted to compromise, and and, and I told her I told her was we recap this. I think it was about Monday of this last week. I said, Sherry. If I hadn't had you, if we hadn't had you, I would have I would have made the wrong decisions. I, I would not have been able, I would not have known. And I didn't even know it. She's, "Well, I read those regs all the time. I know them, I know them. I knew them better. She, people in, the, in our government, I didn't say this online uh, for a live stream, but people in our government would have to go back and check the regs because they didn't know them. And so th- that's words of affirmation. that's not what we're talking about. The language of look at me, praise me, I'm great, isn't likely to even be an actual conversation. But in a relationship where one partner has the need for it to be the only narrative allowed, uh, it's toxic. There is a term used by psychologists and relationship experts to describe the phenomenon of one partner always having to be on a pedestal. It is commonly referred to as idealizing relationship syndrome. They have to be idealized. It is when one has to be viewed as perfect, flawless, or superior in every way It is when one partner cannot admit they are wrong to feel loved It is when one partner has to make all the decisions to feel loved It is when one partner always has to have the last word to feel loved It is when one partner always focuses on the reaction of the offended and takes no responsibility for the offense They will do something very rude, very unthoughtful in words or deeds. And then when you get upset, they will want to send you for anger management. I can't believe you're so angry. You have a problem with anger. And this is where, this is where women get a little, a little advantage. And I'm not, I'm not making this all about, about you ladies by, by any means. But women have a little advantage here. Because if the man doesn't act aggressive... But he acts offended, then it's, how can I trust you? You're so weak. How can I feel secure around you if you're getting your feelings hurt? I need a man who's a man who doesn't get his feelings hurt. I don't care what I do. <laughs> it's getting very quiet here right now. I can move on. <laughs> A sample, it, you know, it, it, it's when one partner has to be the smartest person in the room to feel loved. It's when one partner has to be the hero to feel loved. A sample, here's a sample conversation from psychologist Eleanor Greenberg. Uh, from, uh, uh, it's a conversation of married people. It's what she calls the white knight narcissist. See, See in the church, we condemn narcissism. But we don't often understand there's such a thing as white knight narcissism. And you'll understand what what she means by that when I read this. The first speaker is named Emily. Here's Emily. I never see Richard anymore. He has no time for me or the kids. He's either working late because God forbid he should ever disappoint his boss. Or he's helping some neighbor to fix their garage door. I wish he cared half as much about his family as he does about what everyone else thinks of him. That's a white knight narcissist she's describing. Now, here's Bob. We've got to be equal here. Bob, Sylvia and I met while volunteering to feed the homeless. In the beginning, I thought she was perfect, so kind and caring. We talked for hours about how we were going to save the world together. It was exhilarating after we married. It was exhilarating, period, There, right there, exclamation mark. After we married, he says, I realized that this was all I would ever really get from her. Sylvie's not really interested in me or my company. When I try to tell her about my day, she tunes me out. When I subject to activities that I want to do with her, she seems annoyed, like I was asking for favors. I finally realized that despite her volunteering, she's incredibly self-centered. Sylvie is not volunteering because she is some sort of saint who really cares about people. She just needs to keep proving to everyone how wonderful she is. I call her the queen of the volunteer brigade. She says that the only thing that makes her feel special is helping people. I guess I no longer count as people. So, you understand? Are we clear? <laughs> By the way, I, I want everybody to relax. There's not going to be an altar call at the end of the sermon. Because <laughs> I would not, if I were out there, I wouldn't, I wouldn't run down there. <laughs> I'd say, I'll go home and repent. And by the way, another thing is, when you want to get critical, and I know somebody's sitting here, and you're going, "Boy, I can't wait to talk to my spouse after this service." <laughs> don't don't do that. By the way, <laughs> that's a marriage tip. Don't repreach the sermon to your spouse unless you're going to repent, right? But if you study, you know, if you study uh, controlling behaviors, one thing that will humble you is if you will get really honest and sit on the edge of your bed and think really hard, you will realize you have controlling behaviors too. And so you repent of your controlling behaviors because we all have them. We all have controlling behaviors. Who wants to be out of control? Nobody, right? Okay, let's go to the next one. Yielding compliance and obedience. In other words, I feel loved when I get my way. I feel loved when I'm not being challenged I feel loved when I hear, yes dear that's the only response that brings me peace this compliance peace depends on the power dynamic and the submission or compliance of the significant other in order for you to feel valued Jimmy Evans, who I recommend Jimmy Evans highly for all of you married folks or you're going to get married, I really recommend Jimmy Evans' uh, Marriage on the Rock Ministries. Really biblical, really good stuff. And he talks about overcoming uh, destructive dominance. If there can only be peace, love, and joy when you're getting away, you don't have a marriage, you have a tyranny. And guess what? You're the tyrant. You can be a sweet tyrant, a quiet tyrant, an introverted tyrant, or an extroverted tyrant, or an, or an angry tyrant, or a hysterical tyrant. But you're still a tyrant. Biblical submission among humans is never about the self-worth of anybody. It's all about decisions and actions that provide maximum benefit for everyone and brings about maximum peace and joy and order. It is In a home where there's balance and biblical submission, and it is practiced. The kids win, the wife wins, the husband wins, the couple wins, God wins, and by extension, the church wins and the entire world wins. Again, Philippians 2, 3. Go do nothing out of selfish ambition. Don't be married out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to their own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. That, that's that chapter, that's the same chapter I was talking about earlier where it says you have the mind of Christ. Obviously he would say you have the mind of Christ but you will act out of your mind if you don't read the Bible. True surrender and total submission in a marriage transcend personal agendas and selfish desires. It's not about you getting your way. It's about you getting what is best done. That's what it's about. It involves willingly placing oneself under the authority of God, aligning with his principles in our interactions with another. It's about mutual respect, sacrificial love, and shared commitment to serving one another. Jimmy Evans describes himself this way. He talks about what a destructively dominant person he was. And some of you have seen that, right? You've seen that. Disarming destructive dominance, he says, When Karen and I first married, I had a very dominant personality. For several years, it killed our chances at intimacy. Our marriage nearly failed until we learned to disarm it. Dominance means disproportionate control over the relationship. I am the biblically appointed head of my home, but in a healthy marriage, the wife should be free to express her opinion, and the husband should lovingly encourage her. People always marry according to their level of emotional health. Health marries health and unhealthy marries unhealthy. When Karen and I met, I was popular, confident, and had a raging ego. On the other side, Karen had a very low self-esteem and I was emotionally unhealthy and so was she. She needed a man with self-confidence she liked. I needed a woman who would accommodate my ego. We were a terrible, perfect match. <laughs> that happens often in dominant marriages. A very assertive woman marries a very passive man. Or an unhealthy, assertive man marries a passive woman. It's rare that two dominant people marry each other or two passive people marry. When Karen began to find healing from her emotional health, she started standing up to me. She stopped accommodating my ego, and God used her to bring me healing and make me more humble. Destructive dominance in a marriage is caused by three things. It's caused by fear that if you don't control things, they will go out of control and there, there will be disaster. You have genuine fear to yield control to somebody else. The second thing is resentment. You, you have bitterness, you have resentment, you have anger. You, you feel you've been hurt, so you're not going to trust anyone else. The third thing that cause, causes destructive dominance is generational patterns generational patterns Um, Jimmy Evans talks about the fact that his grandfather was a destructively dominant person his father was a destructively dominant person so naturally he was a destructively dominant person it can happen with the other gender as well it can happen with destructively dominant women raised destructively dominant women and so on the pattern continues Maybe you, you, I think, probably all three. And all, all three, by the way, I want to be very clear. This is not about good people and bad people necessarily. We, uh, because all of us have a little bit of this stuff going on in our life. None of us are perfect. You understand that. You know that. Now, what is the conclusion to this message? Here's my conclusion. I don't believe in the church. We have properly differentiated sin from immaturity we want to treat everything like it's sin and so sin means you repent and you get forgiven and you're cleansed of your sins but what we're talking about today is not a clear black and white sin that you can just repent of what we're talking about here Is immaturity. When we're overtaken by any of these twisted love language habits, we're not being sinful, we're being childish. The Apostle Paul said, When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. I thought, excuse me, I thought and reasoned as a child. Some of the most holy people I've known, I've been in the church my whole life some of the most holy people I know are the most immature they would never commit a sexual sin they would never look at pornography they would never cheat on their spouse, they would never steal take money that was not theirs, they have a great work ethic they line everything lines up with with the teachings of holiness but they're a baby they're um, they're emotionally babies and you say well what is the cure well first of all let me give you two things things. first of all become a seeker and giver of God's unconditional love that's number one become a seeker and giver of unconditional love seek it from your spouse give it to your spouse Don't start every day putting your significant other in a deficit. You know what I mean by that? A lot of couples wake up every morning and their spouse is already behind. Their spouse is already at a deficit. So they have to do do a bunch of sacrificial stuff to even get to zero. No. Wake up in the morning. Start your day totally accepting and loving that person that God put you with that they don't have to start earning your love agape love is unearned unconditional love bring unconditional love into your marriage marriage and love love is not just transactional you know what I mean by that love is not just transactional Relationships tend to be transactional. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I'll do this for you, you do this for me. Love is not all, love, true love is not transactional. True love is a gift that you give your spouse. I'm going to give you genuine, deep, unconditional love. There are transactions. We can talk about that another time. The second, you know, the second thing is when your spouse doesn't, when your spouse has one of these bad love languages, and you know it, you realize it, right? I, I should have said in the beginning of the sermon, look straight ahead. I forgot to do that, <laughs> and keep elbows in. But uh, the tendency is, the tendency is, to meet immaturity with rage. the The tendency is to meet immaturity with abuse. That's why children get abused. Children get abused because they act like children. They drive you crazy. They do foolish things. They break your stuff. They eat all the cookies. They make you mad. Do not meet immaturity with rage. Do not meet mature, immaturity. Anger does not drive away immaturity. If your child, as most children are, they want to eat junk. Every child, just about every child. Now somebody will come and "Your My child wanted broccoli when they were two. Well, you're the exception. They want to eat junk. You don't respond if they want to eat junk by starving them. You respond by giving them veggies and protein. So give your spouse healthy love language, even when they're asking for something toxic and unhealthy. Just keep giving them agape love. Start Feed them that. Now they, want to, they want the Snickers bar. No, not get a Snickers bar. You're gonna get broccoli. You're gonna get protein. You know, my my son and daughter-in-law. Uh, I think Marilyn's back there. You guys did something that was so amazing, that I thought was so amazing was was when we would go to a restaurant with them, they would always turn to the waitress and go, "Don't bring her any bread. Don't bring her any any anything. Bring her bring her veggies. She's hungry, right? So she would eat anything. She would eat the plate." She would eat the napkins. So now today, she's, she's, she loves edamame and broccoli and green beans and all that stuff. She loves it. Because they didn't, they, they, you know, she would have had dessert first if they would have let her choose. Right? Are you with me? Are you with me? The second thing is this. And we're talking about maturity here today. The second thing is this. You know, for most things in life, there's not a magic silver bullet. But for this one, there's a silver bullet. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is your all in all. Not just that he saves you because you pray the sinner's prayer, but he is the model for what you want to become. He's the model of what a mature person looks like and talks like And acts like. He's a model of how a mature person handles stress. He is a model for how a mature person shows love. He's a model for how a mature person sets boundaries for other people. Oh, you talk about, he was really good at setting boundaries. (laughs) He was a model for great relational and psychological health. Everything you need to be about life, you, that's what people really mean when they tell me to just preach Jesus. That's what, that's what they really mean. They don't even know they mean that. But that's what they really mean when they say, just preach Jesus. That's what, and they're correct. Jesus is all you need to know and understand. You, 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 all the, 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 now You can read other books. But really, everything you need to know about life and practice is found in the person of Jesus. And when you get off track, always go back to Jesus. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, be perfect. Whoa, that's scary, isn't it? Be perfect. The word perfect there is the Greek word teleos, and it means mature. Jesus was saying, be mature. That's all he's saying, be mature. Grow up. That's all he was saying. He wasn't saying never make a mistake. He wasn't saying never fail. He was saying emotionally and spiritually, grow up and become a human who knows where you end and other people begin, knows where other people begin and you end. You become a mature person who loves and lives like Jesus. And you may go to the cross sometimes, but good news, you will rise again when you go to the cross. Hallelujah. Amen. Give the Lord a hand. Let's stand up and... uh, I want to, I want to, I don't know if I can, uh, I'm just, is this piano on? I just want to find a chord so I get on the right key. Mm He's all, he's all, he's all, he's all, he's all, mm -hmm, he's all I need. Sing it with me. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. He's all. He's all I need, Jesus is all. That again, I want the prayer partners to come and get in place. He answers prayer. He answers prayer. Jesus answers prayer. He answers prayer. He. Answers prayer. Jesus answers prayer. I don't believe in the kind of magical thinking I was talking about earlier, but I do believe in the supernatural. And I believe that everything in life that's positive begins with a touch from God. I believe the Holy Spirit is real. And some of you in this meeting today, it may not have anything to do with the subject I preach. Maybe it does. Maybe it has to do with relationships that aren't marital relationships. Maybe it has nothing to do with either of those. But for some reason, you need a touch from God right now. And I'm going to sing that song. We're going to sing it again. Jesus is all I need. And while we're singing it, I want you to get out of your seat where you're standing. Get out of the place where you're standing. And I want you to walk to the front. And I want you to ask these prayer partners to pray for you. And I want you to pray of all, whatever you want to ask for is fine. But I want you to ask for a touch from God. I need a touch from God. You need a touch from God. We need a touch from God on our marriages. We need a touch from God on our parenting, on our grandparenting. We need a touch from God. We need a renewal of the Spirit. Let's sing it. And as we're singing it, you come. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. He's all I need. He's all Come and be prayed for right now. For all our needs met, praise God. We don't have any needs in the house. There. Amen. Let's do seriously. Let's take a moment to thank God that our needs are met. Father, thank you, and our needs are met. Thank you, God that we have the availability of petition, but we also have the responsibility of praise. So right now we just thank you. Lift your hands. Let's just thank you. Thank you for marriage. Thank you for relationships. Thank you for intimacy. Thank you even for our failures because they humble us and make us know how much we need you and that we're not great within ourselves, but we need help. Thank you for those things that cause us, to that humble us, and bring us to our knees, Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you and we pray.